Have you ever started something one way and then finished it in a different way? Maybe you've done a diet before, like Whole30. Day one, you're crushing it. No dairy, no grains, no processed sugar. You know, day three, you got headaches. You're eating just a little bread, drinking a little milk. By day 15, you're eating donuts again. I didn't know Gibson's was Whole30 approved. I'll say this to rag on the Matskis. <laughs> we were at dinner at their house last night. They didn't know this would make it in here. And they're doing something like Whole30. And they had a cheat meal. It was a really healthy meal. And after their cheat meal, they said they didn't cheat enough. So they were going to go to Chick-fil-A that night. <laughs> they started one way, they're finishing another. In the day itself, maybe you've started a relationship one way and finished it another. Initially, you were laying yourself down for them. You were pursuing them, you were overlooking their sins. Over time, you started keeping a record of wrong, like a literal notepad in your phone, keeping a record of the wrongs. Maybe you started a school or a job, and you're organized, you're driven, and then slowly, over time, you begin to lose ambition. What about your spiritual life? Have you ever considered the relationship between how your Christian life began and how it continues? I think at this point we've seen in the book of Galatians that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But how does the Christian life continue? Is there a movement that is made from faith to works, from Christ to the law? Do we start one way but finish another? If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be in the first nine verses. In the first, and this is a pivot in the book. In the first couple chapters, Paul is, uh, he's defending his apostleship and defending the gospel that he preaches. He says that he received it by revelation from God. He didn't receive it from a man. In the next two chapters, Paul will move to clearly explaining the gospel to the Galatians who have come to embrace a false gospel from the Judaizers. Last time in particular, we saw that Paul demonstrated his authority by publicly rebuking Peter when his uh, life was out of step with the gospel. So Peter had traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, and uh, he's with a mostly Gentile church, and he's living like a Gentile. We're joking that he's eating barbecue. He's living like a Gentile, with the Gentiles, until this scandal kind of makes its way up to Jerusalem, and James sends some Jewish brothers to come down and see what's happening. Well, Peter, he stops eating like a Gentile. He stops eating with the Gentiles. And Paul rebukes him to his face. Because while he might be saying we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, his actions are communicating something different. Namely, we are justified by our works. So Paul asks Peter in front of everyone, okay, Peter, let me ask you a question. If you, a Jew, live like a Gentile, like you can't even live like a Jew, then why is it that you're compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews? something you can't do, something that's been a burden for us and our forefathers. Now, the Galatians are reading this in their churches. It's written to their churches. It would have been read in one sitting, most likely in their service, and maybe they're kind of giggling a bit, you know. Paul's like going after Peter. Peter's got sauce on his face in more ways than one. Paul now is about to turn his attention to the Galatians. He's going to direct his questions to them. If he went at Peter... He's not going to let them off the hook. 
he's not about to let us off the hook. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you again to Galatians 3, 1 through 9. If you are able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or is it by believing what you have heard? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, the Christian life continues as it began, which is by faith. The Christian life continues as it began, by faith. Paul is going to demonstrate this by making an appeal to three proofs this morning. First, he's going to appeal to his preaching. Next, he's going to appeal to their experience. And lastly, he's going to appeal to Scripture. So first, he appeals to his preaching, then to their experience, and lastly, to Scripture. So the life, it continues as it began, which is by faith. How do we know? Paul says, consider my preaching. Consider your experience in the Spirit and consider the testimony of Scripture. We begin with Paul's preaching, starting in verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Paul comes out hot. <laughs> you notice the rebuke, it's pointed and it's personal. It's on the Galatians. He doesn't divorce their theology from them. In more modern parlance, Paul is saying, you stupid Galatians. And even more common vernacular, Paul is saying, you are really dumb. Like, to turn from a gospel that says we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to one that suggests that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection isn't enough, is so spiritually, morally, and intellectually idiotic, you must be under a spell. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. He goes on, who has cast a spell on you? You before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Like, the scarlet witch must have turned Galatia into Westview because I don't know how else to explain it. I explain the gospel of Christ clear to you, clearly to you in such a way, it's as though Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, Paul doesn't mean here that he actually acted it out. You know, he had a crew, they acted out the crucifixion, 
He had a flourishing skit ministry. Some of y'all grew up at churches with too many skits. Paul means that he clearly preached and explained the gospel in such a way, in such a way that it makes no sense for them to be turning from the true gospel to the Judaizing gospel. Like Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So they weren't actually seeing something, they were hearing something. We get verses in 2 and 5, you can glance at them. He's stressing that they believed what they heard. You see, God actually gives us sight as we hear the preached word. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We see here the importance of preaching the word and the gospel clearly. Paul writes there to the Corinthians, beginning in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but committing ourselves before God to you or to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves with Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, just as God spoke in creation, let there be light, so God speaks to create light in our hearts that we might see Jesus. It is in the preaching of the word that we see God's glory in the face of Christ. It is in preaching that the crucified Lord is lifted up and in our hearts we behold him by faith. This is why we read scripture in service. Why we're willing, willing to read longer texts in our services. This is why what we, we preach what some might consider long sermons that require thinking upon. This is why we don't play videos in our service or do light shows. You see, God is giving us sight. We see by faith as God speaks through the preaching of the word. So they saw, Paul explained Christ crucified to them. He's not thinking like, oh shoot, I left a couple things out. I can see how they made the movement from my gospel to their gospel because I failed to mention that Jesus lived perfectly on their behalf. Like, I failed, I failed to, to, to include that part. His righteousness is their righteousness. Or I failed to mention what happened on the cross, that Jesus was a propitiation for sins. Like, their sins were nailed to Jesus, and God's wrath was satisfied. Or the common mistake, oh, I left Jesus in the grave. I forgot to mention the resurrection. Right? His vindication, his verdict of justification... I forgot to mention it, the resurrection, as our movement from the present evil age and the law to this new creation in the gospel. Like my bad, Galatia, it's on me. Now Paul's saying, I clearly explain the significance of Jesus' life as he was publicly portrayed as crucified. You saw him with your eyes in the preaching. Now, Paul doesn't actually think the Galatians are bewitched, like under a real spell. Like the Judaizers are dropping potions in their communion cups. Or during the scripture reading, you know, they're mummering incantations. Paul is being facetious. 
he's stressing how large of a departure it is from his gospel to this false gospel. Like the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel is the distance between heaven and hell. Paul is beside himself at the fact that they are turning away from Christ and therefore turning away from grace. Friends, notice it is a loving thing to rebuke your brothers and sisters when they wander. The more dangerous their error, the more serious the consequences, the more necessary it is for us to speak the truth in love, sometimes sternly. We don't shrug our shoulders as sheep wander. Friends, I wonder, is there anyone that you need to lovingly confront whom you know that the Lord Jesus would have you to speak the truth in love to them, to confront them, to call them foolish if necessary? Friends, how important is it to you that you continue to embrace the same gospel? Do you have a sense of fear that you would turn away from it? Are you aware of your own proclivities toward foolishness? If it could happen to them, it could happen to us. How important is it to you, the members, or church continues to embrace the same gospel? You might be inclined to think that your doctrine doesn't impact our church, or that what we believe is not your responsibility. It is. Notice that Paul doesn't address their pastors. He writes to the churches in Galatia. He doesn't write to a pastor, to their elder board, to a presbyter, or to a local council. He writes to the churches. Paul seems to think that individual Christians are capable and responsible for maintaining gospel doctrine. Like they should have been able to distinguish between what's true and what's false, and they should have dealt with it immediately. This is, of course, why we are congregational. We believe the final seat of authority rests with the people, with the members of the church. No doubt the elders bear a unique responsibility. But brothers and sisters, if you sit in those pews and you pay us and you pat our backs as we preach to you a false gospel, it's on you. Kenan ought to write us a letter, you stupid Memphians, who has bewitched you? Like, are you people drunk? That ain't the church we planted. That's not the gospel we preach. The responsibility falls with the members, maintaining gospel doctrine. You see, friends, if we turn aside from the grace of God, Paul told us Galatians 2.21, it's as though Jesus died for nothing. That is foolish. Paul says, you should know better, I taught you better, and you experience something better and different. We turn now to consider, to consider their experience in verses two through five. Paul's gonna get at it through a series of questions. This is our longest of the three points. It's kind of a sandwich. But beginning in verse two, Paul says, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul's central concern in the book of Galatians is the doctrine of justification. Are we made right before God based on something that we've done or a change that happens in us, or is it based on something Jesus has done? 
something that we grab a hold of simply by faith. Another way to get at that question is asking, how does the Christian life begin? You see, the Judaizers are saying that the distinguishing mark of a Christian is circumcision. That's how the Christian life begins. That's how you're granted entrance into the covenant community. Paul is going to demonstrate that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by asking this one simple question. When did you receive the Spirit? Was it before or after works? Did you have to do something to prepare for it? Did you earn it? Or did you simply receive the Spirit when you believed? These are the only two options. You were either rewarded the Spirit for your works or the Spirit of God was given to you as a gift when you believed. Paul knows that to be true. He believes them to be Christians. You received it when you believed. Paul writes as much in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. He says that it's when we believe that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's our seal for the day of redemption. He says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, or what Paul is saying there, that when we believed, Jesus actually baptizes us into the Spirit. We're made to drink of the Spirit, and we're baptized into his body. Friends, this is why we don't have to seek out a second baptism. We don't need to improve on what Christ has already done. The Spirit has come to us as a gift when we believed, when we heard. And friends, I think we know this instinctively. They know this instinctively. This is why Paul is calling them to draw on their experience. The Spirit of the Son actually testifies in us that we are God's children. Paul writes as much in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies to us that we are God's children, and it comes to us as a gift. Friends, if you are in Christ subjectively, you know yourself to be a child of God, even if you can't put it into words, even as it is beyond words. And it came to you before you did a single good thing in your entire life. It, like the whole of your Christian experience, is a gift from God. But here, I think, is the question for us and the question that the Galatians are facing. If we started out the Christian life believing and receiving the Spirit, is that how it continues? Or is there a turn that takes place from faith in Christ to works of the law, from the Spirit to my flesh? Maybe it's like I'm justified by faith, but now I'm sanctified by works. Maybe we're forgiven as a gift, but we earn our sanctification. Is that how it works? Verse three, are you so foolish? I guess that's not how it works. <laughs> he goes on, after beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? John Stott summarized the Judaizers' theology well when he said, this is what they taught, you must let Moses finish what Christ has begun. This is what the Galatians are guilty of. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Salvation is of God. Right? The Spirit called us in the preaching of the Word. He regenerated us. The Spirit gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. He gave us the newness of life and regeneration. It's through His indwelling that we are adopted, and the Spirit of God is the one who sanctifies us. Friends, do you think it is up to you to finish what God has begun? 
very tongue-in-cheek, Paul says, are you finishing by the flesh what Christ has begun by the Spirit? Like, are you going to finish God's work through your circumcision of the flesh? Is a bloody scalpel your contribution to a bloodied cross? Seriously. Are we to turn from Christ to ourselves? Paul is stressing that the Christian life, it is begun by faith and it continues by faith. Philip Graham Ryken put it well when he said, the way into the Christian life is also the way on in the Christian life. This might be one of the most significant things for us to grasp as Christians. It's at our justification and our sanctification. So our becoming more like Christ, they're both gifts to us. They're both received by faith and they both flow to us through our union with Christ. We truly go to Christ with nothing and we get everything. Paul is only unpacking here what he said in Galatians 2.20. If you'll look back up there. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We saw this last time, but it's worth stressing. There is a double grace that flows to us in our union with Christ. The first is justification, that in Jesus we are regarded legally as righteous. Jesus actually represented us. He became a human man. God the Son became a human. And because of that, his history becomes our history. His life is our life. His death is our life death his resurrection is our resurrection his ascension is our ascension his righteousness truly becomes ours because he becomes ours but there's this second grace that flows to us and it's Christ living in us by the indwelling of his spirit don't miss this we were in him as he accomplished our justification and he is in us as he accomplishes our sanctification they both come as a gift. They flow from our union with Christ. It's important for us to see that justification and sanctification are distinguishable. Okay? They're distinguishable. They're different. The common mistake is to confuse and combine the two and to think that our standing before God depends upon our experience of holiness, that we will only be right before God insofar as we are actually holy. They're distinguishable. They're different. One is a legal standing. It happened in an instant as God declared us as righteous as his son. The other, sanctification, is a process. It's experiential by which we become more and more like Jesus. They're distinguishable, but they are inseparable. That means you can't have one without the other. Like there is no Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. The grace that saves us, changes us, because they both flow to us from Christ. It can't not happen. It also means they're distinguishable, but they're inseparable. It means we don't leave our justification behind even as we progress, progress in sanctification. You could think of it as a slinky. <laughs> our kids love slinkies. There's no getting away from our legal standing. It is the basis, the grounds of our sanctification. 
that we are righteous in the Father's sight and that everything that comes to us flows to us from Christ. All we need is for what he has accomplished to be applied to us. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we don't have a role or responsibility in sanctification. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We work it out by the ordinary means of grace, but we do so by faith. There's never a turning from faith to works. No, our faith works. And we're not trying to complete the work he's done, but to experience the work that he began and is finishing. Paul says also in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What God has began, he will finish. We were justified when we believed. We are sanctified as we continue to rely on and rest upon Jesus. From beginning to end, salvation is of God. And yet, and yet, we are those recovering Pharisees, are we not? Paul clearly explained it to them. Christ has been publicly portrayed as crucified before our very eyes, and yet we are prone to try to finish in the flesh what was begun by the Spirit. Are we not? Why? As foolish as it is, why? We know better theologically, why is it that we want to finish by the flesh what was begun by the Spirit? There are at least a couple reasons, too, that come to mind. The first is, I think we're inclined to seek to add our works to Christ's because we want to be able to boast before God. Like if my making it to heaven finally depends upon me, then I will have some reason to boast before God. Even if it's 99% God and 1% me, 1% for eternity is not that bad. Friends, there will be no room to boast before God. He will not share his glory with another. Paul makes as much clear in Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans 4 that we are saved by grace so that there is no room to boast. And I think the second reason why we're inclined to return to our works as a grounds before God, it's because we do not trust God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, though they were given everything short of God's throne, they thought he was withholding from them. They doubted his goodness. The funny thing about having young kids, like really young kids, we've got three of them, almost four, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, I'm told we will have a five-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and a newborn. <laughs> Pray for us. The thing about having young kids, like really young kids, is they're dependent upon you for everything. Like, seriously, if we didn't feed our kids and give them water, they would die. And they know this. They know they need you for everything. And yet, they do not trust you. They might come as a surprise to you. They trust us more than they trust you people. But they do not trust us instinctively. There's something inside of them that's suspicious of us. Okay, why do I say that? Your kid asks for brownies or cookies. You tell them no, they start crying. Why? 
You're taking a Target, beautiful place. There's all those toys in there. Kids, our kids always want new toys. We tell them no. They start crying. Why? They think we're withholding from them. Like there is some goodness that we are withholding from them. Josie, our youngest, she's, she's in her tough season because she can't speak yet. She's close to one and a half. And she will just cry and cry it out until she gets what she wants. So she's hungry. She makes her way. She can climb up into her own high chair and she just will wail and wail and wail. And we know what she wants and we tell her, we're getting you food. We're getting you food. Just be patient. And she just cries and cries and cries. Why? One, it works. We feed her every time. (laughs) Secondly, on some level, she is suspicious of us. Yes, they fed me last time, but what if they don't this time? They are withholding from me. Though the Son promises us, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. We embrace his promises, but with suspicion. We draw near to God cautiously and with distrust. Like, we'll see what he thinks about me when I slip up. In the meanwhile, I'll ensure he loves me by doing what he wants. And so on the days we wake up early, we spend time with the Lord, which is a good thing. We're inclined to think, oh, God is really going to love me today. And when we fall in that habitual sin, we hide from God. Why? We think his love toward us is predicated upon our law-keeping We can't seem to shake the feeling that God relates to us through the law and he's withholding from us. Like, okay, maybe the cross was good for the beginning of the Christian life. I was forgiven then, but I need to get my act together on my way to heaven. Begin by the spirit, finish by the flesh. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, not just on the day you were saved, but every single day of your life. That though God required perfect obedience from you, he counts his son's obedience in your place. That though you deserved death for your transgressions, God slayed his beloved son for you. That you might be his children that God, the one who is infinite in his being and perfections, loves you. Not because of something you've done. If that were the case, you would risk losing it. He loves you because he loves you. He's not going to stop because he never started. It is eternal. Put on full display for you to see in the death of his son. All that God requires was accomplished in Christ, and it is applied to us now as we trust Jesus. God does not leave you to yourself between justification and glory. He is not withholding for you. What is there left for him to withhold? Romans 8.32, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him grant us everything? God has already done the hard thing. He gave up his son. He will supply what we need, not just for justification, but for sanctification. 
Friends, do you think you really need to distrust God? Will he not finish what he began? Does the cross scream out, I am only willing to help them a little? Friends, we don't need to try to finish by the flesh what was begun by the Spirit. We need the Spirit to apply what was accomplished by the Son, and we grab hold of it through faith. The works we do, they are done in faith. We live now as the Son lives in us. Paul goes on with a couple more questions, verse 4 and verse 5. He says, did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? Quickly here, he's basically saying, was your experience for naught? Like, did you experience all this only now to turn away from Christ to experience nothing, to cut yourself off from grace? You see, they find themselves at a major fork in the road. Either they will rest and rely upon Jesus alone or themselves their flesh under the works of the law. And then verse five, he basically restates what he said in verse two and three. So then does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Like consider your experience. The spirit has worked miracles among you, bringing the dead to life, changing your hearts. Like those who used to mock God are now worshiping him. Those of you who used to use people are now serving them. The thieves are working and giving. Past enemies now are family. Perhaps there are other signs like healings. Did you experience all of this before or after your works? Friends, is God's work in your life because you earned it? Do you deserve it? Or is it because he's graciously giving you what the Son has accomplished? So Paul, he appeals to his preaching, he appeals into their experience, and then he connects their experience with the experience of another, the father not only of the Jews, but of faith, Abraham. We turn now to consider Paul's last appeal. It's an appeal to scripture, right? We have been justified. We were justified when we believed what we heard. Verse six, just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So Paul does something interesting here. He makes an appeal to Abraham in particular. So again, the Judaizers are arguing that the works of the law are necessary for salvation. That circumcision in particular is necessary to become a Christian, to join the covenant community. And Abraham was their proof text. Like, look, the Abrahamic covenant, you have to be circumcised for the blessings of God to come to you. So Paul turns to him to Genesis 15 and then Genesis 12 to demonstrate, no, 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 no. Abraham believed God. He trusted in the promises of God and it was credited to his account that he was righteous. He wasn't made righteous. God legally considered him righteous. It happened before Israel got the land. It happened before Moses got the law. And it happened before Abraham was circumcised. We could say that Abraham was justified as a Gentile before he became the father of the Jews. Like Galatia, NBC, you were justified apart from works of the law. So was Abraham. It's the way it's always been. Some of you might be inclined to think that the Reformation was a mistake that the schism with Rome was a mistake. Friends, it was not. 
The gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's older than Luther or Zwingli or Calvin. It's older than Abraham or Adam. It was forged in the mind of God in eternity past that there would be one way that he would save his people through his son as they believe upon him. Even the Judaizers, precious Abraham, believed and was justified apart from works. He couldn't be good enough. He didn't need to be. Paul goes on, look down at verse eight. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Now this is interesting. Paul actually in verse six quotes Genesis chapter 15. Then, in verse 8, he moves back to Genesis 12 and tells us that in Genesis 12, the scriptures, they were looking forward to a time that the Gentiles would be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what was preached to Abraham in Genesis 12. That's what he believed in Genesis 15. That's what we believe in today. If you are tracking with the biblical storyline leading up to Genesis chapter 12, as we read part of it this morning in our corporate scripture reading, you understand that the world is under a curse. You see it over and over again in the first 11 chapters. Curse, 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 curse. Man has been cut off from God and is experiencing the effects of the fall both spiritually and physically as he is in a body and in a world that is failing him. And then in Genesis 12, we finally see blessing. It is like a sigh of relief. The answer to the world's problems will come through Abraham's family. And it's there in Genesis 12 that the gospel is preached to Abraham in seed form. And it was meant for him and for the nations, for Galatia and for Memphis. Like God's hearts have always been for the nations. And his plan has always been the gospel. Abraham believed it. In Genesis 15, it was credited to him as righteousness. He heard it, and then in a sense, he saw it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. There, God reiterates his promises to Abraham, Abram at the time. Abram believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. But Abram wants to know, basically, how do I know you'll make good on your promise? Like, how will the nations be blessed through my line? I don't even have a physical heir. And so God speaks to him in verse 9. He, that is God, said to him, that is Abram, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all of these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now God is performing a covenant ceremony with Abram. What that means is their relationship is becoming formal. Like any real covenant relationship, like a marriage covenant relationship, there are stipulations that each party is agreeing to. What would happen is they would cut these animals in half, they would... They would line them up and they would, the two parties would walk through them saying, 
If I don't uphold my end of the bargain of the covenant, may I be split in half like one of these animals. Then something remarkable happens, something that neither Abraham nor anyone else would have expected. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Verse 17, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch, this is a representation of God, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Now, you expect Abraham and God to walk through this parade of bloodied animals, saying that if I don't uphold my end of the deal, let this happen to me. Now, there's no question that God is going to uphold his end of the bargain. But is Abraham, will his descendants? But he is seeing the most unexpected thing that God is walking through saying that if either of us do not uphold our obligations in this covenant, may I be cut in half like one of these animals. If you sin against me, I will shed my blood for you. If all the nations of the earth are to be blessed, if they are to be justified, to be made right with God, to be brought back into his land, his kingdom, if it's going to happen, God is going to have to shed his blood. It, of course, would be necessary as no human ever lived perfectly under the law. So how does God do this? He becomes one of his covenant partners. He becomes a man. He upholds both ends of the covenant obligations. And yet, the son is like an animal, like an animal torn in two, the son bled on behalf of God's people that they might be justified. He did not spare his own son. Abraham received that by believing. The dude's asleep. He's not adding any works to it. And then Paul connects the dots for us in verse 7 and 9. Verse 7, he says, You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Verse 9, Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You can see the implications of what Paul is saying. Circumcision is not necessary to be justified. It's not necessary to be a child of Abraham. And quite conversely, those who are circumcised, those who do not believe, they are not children of God. Paul is radically redefining the family of God. This will become clear for us the further we get into Galatians. You see, it is only those who believe who are Abraham's children. This means that being a child of Abraham, it's not hereditary. It's not genealogical. It's not based on, based on ethnicity. It's not an ethnic distinction, but a spiritual one. It comes to us as we believe what we heard. We're justified and we are adopted. Friends, this is why we do not baptize believers and their infants. We think it's a grave mistake. We become children of Abraham, and it should be clear for the world to see as we believe and are then baptized. The mark of a Christian is the indwelling of a spirit, not something that happens fleshly. It's not an ethnic distinction, a cultural distinction, but a spiritual one. Jesus says as much in John chapter 8 when he tells the Pharisees that they are not children of Abraham, but the devil. 
John the Baptist says likewise in Luke chapter four when he says Israel can't just opt out of repentance by saying they're children of Abraham. He's like God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wants to. Paul is abundantly clear in Romans chapter two beginning in verse 28. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That is not by the law. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who are Christians, this ought to be a comfort to us. That we, like Abraham, are justified when we believed apart from any works that we have or haven't done. That also means we can't lose it. We're not going to be kicked out of the family of God. We are justified by grace. It has nothing to do with our family, as good or as bad as they are or were, what religion they ascribe to. It has nothing to do with our culture, what part of the country we were born in, or our keeping of the law. From Adam to Abraham to us, we are justified simply by believing in Jesus, by clinging to God's saving promises. Maybe you are visiting us this morning and you grew up going to church and deep down you understand that there is a difference between you and Christians who really love Jesus. You might say you are a cultural Christian. Friend, being born into a Christian home or into the South does not make you a Christian. You need to be born into the family of God and you do so by trusting in Jesus. I'll say also to our children, our teenagers, we're so glad that you guys participate with us in the worship gathering, that you listen to the entire sermon, taking notes. I don't know if they do that. But I am speaking to you now. It is a blessing. It is a gift from God to grow up in a Christian home. One of the difficult things, and I would encourage you to talk to any of our members it can be hard to discern if and when you've made the movement from being in a Christian home to being a Christian yourself. But being born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Being a child of your parents doesn't make you a child of Abraham. You need to trust Jesus. We would encourage you this morning, whether you are visiting us and you are an atheist or an agnostic, whether you are culturally Christian or a child, to put your trust in Jesus. Trust in him and him alone. Friends, this is good news. Good news that we should never, never grow tired of hearing. That because he died, we died. Because he lives, we live. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Like Abraham before us, from beginning to end, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's it. We are saved by the sufficiency of the Son. There is nothing left for us to add because God has given us all we need in Christ. He is indeed the fount from which all blessings flow. Not just for our justification, but for our sanctification. From beginning to end, it is of God, and He is worthy of our trust. Let's pray.